1: Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant.
2: And I'm Bibi Ganesanathan, author of the novel Love Marriage. Have you ever been banned? You mean like at a club? Yeah, (laughs) why not at a club, at a bar?
1: Like for instance, have you ever thrown a brick through a window at the Foxhead Bar on the night right after you published a really great novel.
2: I feel like this is a story you know more than a story I know. This, <laughs> this seems a, like you're... This is a
1: story I know, but not a thing that I did. I will say that at least. Um, yes, you're right. Um, the banning that I actually want to talk about, maybe I'm just like trying to resist this topic because it's. I find this topic terrifying and scary, but the banning that we are going to talk about that I want to talk about is not... The kind of banning that goes on at a bar at the Fox, like the Fox set. I is... would be
2: terrified to be banned from the Fox set, though. Let's be clear. I
1: know. it's Well, it's a famed writer's bar in Iowa City, as we both know. And,
2: but there are plenty of patrons at that bar who would be familiar with the topic that we're going to talk about today. Uh, the actual banning that we're talking about today is book banning. I really wish it was just bar banning. But unfortunately, a new wave of book banning appears to be sweeping the country and, you know, on the surface, these bands often focus on explicit sexual content, like what Texas governor and, um, yeah, I have other epithets, uh, Greg Abbott termed, and I'm quoting, <laughs> he's just,
1: he just like paralyzed over his name.
2: <laughs> I, mean, I just had, got to it and was just, We've yeah. had three what the fuck,
1: no, is, we've <laughs> had two what the fuck Texas episodes already. We're sick I of just, this
2: guy. Anyway, Greg Abbott terms, is concerned about the presence of pornography and other obscene content. In a November 2021 letter to the Texas Board of Education, but in practice, in practice hide your surprise, objections to explicit sexual content seem to be applied mainly to books that cover ideological territory that conservatives like Abbott don't approve of and don't want to talk about LGBTQIA identity and race.
1: For instance, this past October, Texas Republican State Representative Matt Krause sent a letter to school districts detailing a list of 850 books that he believed, quote, might make students feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress because of their race or sex. I did. Because I'm a masochist, look through this l- list, Sugi.
2: I mean, I'm still stuck on discomfort. I'm like staring, like Discomfort. <laughs> God forbid I okay. tell you what,
1: I had discomfort looking through this list okay. because I thought this well, list was Well, God forbid insane. anyone should
2: be uncomfortable for nine seconds. What did you right. find? What I did think, you find?
1: Well, you can get a decent sense of what's going on here. And I mean, what's really being banned by looking at the titles on Cross's list. Um, so, and these are not books that have been banned, but I think that he is proposing these as possible, you know, um, ideas for banning. Uh, so the books that Cross is flagging as suspect include titles like LGBTQ rights. LGBTQ plus athletes claim the field. Queer there and everywhere. 23 people who changed the world. Drag
2: teen, a tale of angst and wigs. Are you getting the picture here? There's a target. I mean, what do these things have in common? And also on that list are books with titles like 2020 Black Lives Matter marches. Black Lives Matter. From hashtag to the streets. Uh, hashtag Black Lives Matter. Protesting racism. Me and White Supremacy. So.
1: (laughs) That was was the book by Matt Krause, actually. He's banning his own book. Sorry. (laughs) No, that's a joke. Uh, Maybe he did search and replace for Black Lives Matter, though. I do think that's one thing he did in composing that list.
2: I find these people so tiresome. Okay. Anyway. Not very subtle. This is not very subtle. Um, So, we are going to talk about the implications, dangers, and causes of this new wave of challenges to what Americans can read with two fantastic writers. So for our next episode, we'll be talking to Bara Jasmine Griffin, author of Read Until You Understand, The Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature.
1: And today we have the pleasure of speaking with novelist Garth Greenwell. Garth is the author of What Belongs to You, which won the British Book Award for debut of the year, was long listed for the National Book Award, and was a finalist for six other awards, including the Penn Faulkner Award, the James Tate Black Memorial Prize, and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Uh, a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice, it was named a Best Book of 2016 by over 50 publications in nine countries and is being translated into 14 languages. His new book of fiction, Cleanness, was published in January 2020. A finalist for the Lambda Literary Award, Cleanness, was named. Cleanness was named a New York Times Notable Book of 2020, a New Yorker, a New York Times critic's top 10 book of the year, and a best book of the year by the New Yorker, Time, NPR, the BBC, and over 30 publications. Greenwell is also also the co-editor with R.O. Kwan of the anthology Kink, which appeared in February 2021 and was named a New York Times Notable Book. Welcome to the show, Garth.
2: Hi,
3: thanks so much for having me.
2: It's great to have you with us. Um, so I'm going to start off with some facts here. Uh, according to the American Library Association, there were 330 book challenges in the fall of 2021, which is more than usual and in fact, it was enough that the ALA released a statement condemning and I'm quoting here attempts to remove materials that focus on LGBTQIA issues and books by black authors or that document the black experience or the experiences of other BIPOC individuals. So just to start off, when did you start noticing this trend and, and are your writer friends talking about it?
3: Well, I mean, challenges to queer material, um, that's something that I've been aware of my whole life. I mean, I was very much aware of it as a kid in public schools in Kentucky. Um, You know, it was uh, clear to me, or I knew that even teachers who might want to be sympathetic were constrained, legally constrained from discussing um, queer issues or assigning queer books or even... Um, making queer books available to kids the more and and I guess that you know um i've I've never thought that went away i mean i've I've known that that's always been a part of the landscape um and then there's been a a much more recent um push that I think is is as focused on um you know books centered on black lives and on Um, narratives that center the black American experience in nonfiction um, that are being challenged, um, you know, as quote unquote, critical race theory. And that, you know, it does seem to me that in the last couple of years that has gotten very, very loud.
1: I feel like there's this, we're going to actually also talk about that in our, specifically in our, in our next episode. Um, uh, But I do feel like there's been also this sort of overlap where people are objecting to books for, about saying it's the sexual content that we don't like when really it is the ideas in the book that we are objecting to, right? Um, and so the, they're saying it's inappropriate, you know, because of, this, because of the sex parts, but what really is inappropriate is what the book is saying. For instance, in the St. Louis suburb, and I live in Missouri, uh, Wentzville recently voted to ban Toni Morrison's novel The Bluest Eye because the book was too explicit in its depiction of sexual abuse. Uh, in Florida, school board voted to ban George Matthew Johnson um, Johnson's essay collection "All Boys Aren't Blue" about his experience as a queer black man. You have taught high school students. Is there an appropriate age for reading sexually explicit content, or is that a dangerous idea in and of itself?
3: Well, so first of all, I think you're right that "quote unquote" sexually explicit content content is very often a cover for something else. Like, for instance, a book that's perennially on. Um, the sort of most challenged lists from the ALA, um, is David Levithan's book, Two Boys Kissing, in which there isn't any sex. So, you know, that's sort of flagged as being a book that is inappropriate for a certain age because it's sexually explicit. It's not sexually explicit. So clearly the objection is to something else. Now, as to the second part of the question, I think that's a difficult question You know, and I do think the idea of appropriate reading for certain ages is potentially a dangerous idea. I also think it's an inescapable one, you know. And I do think teachers um, have to and are very much aware of the fact that um, not all kids are developmentally in the same place. And I would say that, you know, there is... um, you know, like I would not be comfortable with my book cleanness being taught in a sixth grade class say. So yes, I mean, I do think there is a question of, you know, um, sort of coordinating sort of development and the, the material, the subject, the content of books, that seems to me entirely legitimate. I have a lot of faith um, in teachers, who devote their lives to working with young people and in school communities, um, in sort of having that conversation. And I do think like that conversation is going to be a difficult conversation. That's going to be a contested space. I think it should be a contested space. I don't think we should freak out that it's a contested space. Um, I think communities should be part of talking about um the curricula of their schools and i think that you know it's fine for there to be differences of opinion there i also think um you know uh there can be a lot of um i don't want to say hypocrisy because I, I you know i i i think it's good to assume good faith on the part of other people and i think it's perfectly reasonable for parents to be concerned about, um, you know the certain questions of explicitness and what their students are um, experiencing, you know, it, the explicitness of American culture in general is something that I think <laughs> you know parents um, are perfectly reasonable to be thinking about in relation to their kids. So, like, I would not presume bad faith. But if someone, I would is, sometimes.
1: Sorry about that. <laughs> I often
3: well, do Well, I mean, I I think it should be. Yeah, I think we all do, and I worry about that. Um, like, I mean, yes. I think bad faith, the sort of bad faith should be earned. The presumption of bad faith, and that <laughs> you know we shouldn't pretend that these questions are easier than they are. Like the question of how do we educate our students? Um, how do we educate our kids? What's appropriate for our kids? those are always going to be vexed questions, and they should be vexed questions and I think as much as possible, we should open up a space for conversation around them that does not presume villainy
1: yeah that's I like that phrasing I mean, I remember what you know like some of the earliest things that i you know like I remember reading d h Lawrence very early on, I found a book in the house, you know it was my parents, you know it's like. That was useful to me. I, there also I think are like reading about sex is a little better than maybe just watching Pornhub, which is also very available to sixth graders, unfortunately. These days, you know? I mean, I feel like there are there there's a positive aspect to to learning through literature about this sort of common human thing. And well, kids, I think of that's curious about it.
3: I mean, I think that's a, a really powerful argument and that echoes a conversation that I had Um, around what belongs to you where, you know, I do think if we're realistic, um, I mean, first of all, kids are going to think about sex and that's great and healthy. And it would be great to give them tools to think about it in nuanced and complex ways. Um, You know, the sort of ubiquity of pornography and of especially kind of ever more extreme internet pornography is something that were I a parent, would um, be something that I thought a lot about and how to equip my kids with better tools for thinking about intimacy than, um might immediately be made available by that kind of material. And I think literature is one of those tools. I mean, one of the arguments I make about the importance of literature as an intervention in our cultural imagining of sex is that literature um, centers subjectivity. And it seems to me very often that especially a certain species of internet pornography goes to great lengths to expunge consciousness from the bodies on screen. And, you know, I do think 16-year-old kids can learn a lot from D.H. Lawrence who takes sex very seriously as you know a mode of communication, but also you know when we talk about books in schools, I think we should also be clear that we can be talking about very different things, and that I think different cons- considerations would pertain to a book that I'm going to assign and make required for a hundred kids. Versus you know, when I was teaching high school, I would very often have units where there would be five or six books and students could choose a book um, to read. So in that case, there would be different considerations. And then the question of a book I might recommend to a student to read on his or her own time, or books that are available in libraries. like those are three very different categories that I th- that I would certainly think about in different ways. And it probably, you know, the sort of the threshold for me of where, you know, a variegated group of 14 year olds who are all over the map developmentally, what book I think it would make sense to read with all of them together, as opposed to a book I might want to be sure was on the shelf in a library and I could, you know, sort of direct a student that way.
2: I so appreciate these distinctions you're drawing between, um, you know, screen depictions and text and these different categories of text. Also, I'm just remembering, you know, as a kid, I don't remember how old I was, but maybe not that old. I remember watching um, A Streetcar Named Desire, which of course has like a very particular ending. I had no idea what happened in that movie for some years. Like I just didn't know how it ended, didn't, couldn't, my parents had never seen it, didn't ask them. Um, the same thing happens in like in, in Gone with the Wind, she's ravished like, even on the page, didn't know what that meant Um, for some years, like, like, the screen depiction, like, right, the cutting away. Um, And I think, like, this is such an important distinction between, like, right, um, kind of, like, body depictions of sex. And when when you read, like, you have the capacity to imagine so many different bodies in that space, even if it's described, even if the body is described very specifically. You can imagine such a different range of people. So it also feels to me more inclusive and then you you also talked about I mean we we Whitney mentioned the bluest eye and then there's also like subtly here this like question of trauma and when we should become aware of it which is also in here like like I don't want my kid to know bad things can happen but if your kid doesn't know bad things can happen we were exchanging emails also about what it what had happened within the dream house and and some of what Carmen Mier, Maria Machado had said about this is that you know if you're if you're if you, if readers don't know that abusive relationships can happen, then, of course, then their ability, the ability of young people to protect themselves in those situations is is less. And so, I mean, all of this seems to me so important. And I think, like, one of the things I most appreciate about your work is you use the word intimacy. And the depiction there is also so important because, like, it's the beginning of the time when a parent begins to realize that they can't know everything in their child's mind, which is, like horrifying um oh i'm already there (laughs) i know and like right and it's the and it's the intimacy like the notion that your 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 child is going to turn into someone who's intimate with people and you won't know about it and um and in cleanness there's a passage really early on in cleanness where the narrator who's an american teaching in bulgaria is talking to a gay student and that student is describing how moved he is by the poetry the narrator has been assigning i wonder if you could read that for us
3: Oh, I'd be so happy to. And, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned that chapter because, you know, that is a chapter where this teacher gets gets it wrong. You know, he isn't able to help this student. And I think that does underscore the fact that, you know, as you were just saying, I mean, this is hard stuff. There's not a right answer as to when do I stop trying to protect my child from You know, really difficult, devastating truths about the world. And when, you know, at some point, when do I introduce them to that? Or when do I allow them to become aware of that? There's no right answer, you know? And so like, again, I mean, as I feel so often in kind of public discourse in North America right now, like... I wish there were a greater sense of generosity and a greater sense of our own fallibility and the fact that like these are intractable really difficult questions that none of us gets right. Um so here's an example of um someone I'm who would bring this that moment... up to Tucker Carlson. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean I wish somebody would like I do, but <laughs> I mean, you know, it's easy to point to Tucker Carlson, but I think this is true on the left as well. And you know, I think all of us are talking with um far more certainty than any of these questions actually allow. And we allow ourselves to be backed into, into corners by what we perceive as the certainty of the opposing party. And that just, I worry about that as a model for human life. But um, in this in this chapter, as, as you were saying, a student, um, it's set in Sofia, Bulgaria, and a student who is a senior, he's um, getting ready to go off and leave Sofia at some point, he comes out to the narrator Um, and he talks about some reading they had done earlier in the semester. Those poems we read then, those poems we read in class, he said then, I had never seen anything like them. I didn't know anything like them existed. He was talking about Frank O'Hara, I understood, whose poems had shocked most of my students as I intended them to. I had never read anything before he went on, I mean, a story or a poem that seemed like it was about me, that I could have written it. He didn't look at me as he said this, looking instead at his hands, both of which were on the table in front of him and in one of which a cigarette had shrunk almost to its nub between two fingers. I felt two things as he spoke. First, my usual dismay when talking to gay men here who were more excluded than I had been growing up in the American South, where at least I had found books that even if they were always tragic, offered a certain beauty as compensation. But in addition to dismay, I felt satisfaction or pride at having provided, as I thought of it, some degree of solace, and maybe this was the bigger part of what I felt. I had gathered him up, I thought, And this sparked a sense of warmth that started in the central pit of me and then radiated out. It was a craftsman's pride, I suppose. I had worked hard to find the right poems for the students, choosing O'Hara for his subject matter, but primarily for his joy, his freedom from guardedness and guilt, which would only have reinforced what many of my students already believed about that category or class of people of which I was a part. My satisfaction only deepened when G. continued. After our coffee arrived and we took a moment to add sugar and milk. You're the only person I know who talks about it, who's so public and who isn't ashamed, he said. It's good that you're that way. It must be hard here. This was a kind of acknowledgement one hardly ever hears. And it recalled the sense of mission I had had when I first started teaching, which had faded so decisively since... And again, this had the effect of increasing the distance between us, so that even as I saw he remained agitated, tense, and anxious, that he was miserable with something he still had to say, I was suffused with a sense of accomplishment, a
1: peculiar and sharp pleasure. Thank you so much. I really love that passage, and I do want to say, I love what you were saying earlier, right before you read about generosity and trying to remember to do that. And that sometimes our reaction to our opponents takes away that generosity. And I, I am definitely guilty of that at times. And so <laughs> me too. it's nice to be reminded of that truth. Um, so, you know, the other thing about that passage, and in a, in a way, your entire novel is an example of how the term inappropriate. It reminds me of, you know, the way that in, in this book banning issue... Um, Inappropriate really being used as a weapon to silence voices that would be completely interp- uh, completely appropriate uh, and healing and necessary for readers like the student that you're describing in this passage. And I think those people get left out of this discussion um, when it comes up.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that that is, you know, one of the great arguments for bringing diverse books into classrooms, which is something that I believe very strongly in and tried to work very hard um to, to sort of do as a, as a high school teacher. And it's something that the narrator is thinking about doing here. Um, You know, I mean, I, I do think it is. um, I mean, you know, one reason that I think it makes sense to devote one's life to literature as I've done is that um, literature can have this, What for me, as a 14-year-old kid in Louisville, Kentucky, before the internet, was really a kind of salvific force. I mean, you know, I grew up in a place where there were only two stories told about men like me, and they were that we could molest children and we could die of AIDS. That was it. And then when I was 14, I randomly, I did not have a teacher point me to this, quite randomly, because in a book, uh, uh, this independent bookstore, Holly Cook in Louisville, Kentucky, had a little dark little corner of LGB, actually, I'm sure it was just gay and lesbian literature. And I randomly pulled Giovanni's room off the shelf and reading Giovanni's room, which is not a happy story, which is not a story that suggests that like being a gay person in the world is gonna be great, Um, But it just radically reoriented my sense of my relationship to dignity. And that was something that I desperately needed. So, I mean, that, you know, um, I took very seriously as a teacher and really all of my colleagues took equally seriously, you know, that kind of effect one can have. Um, And it's easy to exaggerate that effect. It's easy to you know, um, imagine that one has much more power than one has or that one, you know, something that the narrator in that chapter thinks a little later is how foolish it is to imagine that we can know what our effect is on another person. Um, but every teacher I know takes really seriously how important it can be to put the right book in the right kid's hands. Um, And that, I mean, again, that has to do with curricula and the kinds of debates that we're having. But it also is something that can happen outside of curricula, you know, that can happen in a cafe or, you know, in in office hours or wherever.
1: Okay, we're going to take a quick break here in our conversation with Garth Greenwell and we'll be right back.
2: You mentioned before um, Two Boys Kissing is an example of a book that doesn't have explicit descriptions in it, uh, doesn't have sex in it, but frequently is targeted as being banned. And I wonder if there are things that are maybe like a little bit the other way around. Um, things that have, say, descriptions of straight white sex, uh, Judy Bloom, Phil Broth, um, James Salter, things that in the past have been banned maybe are less banned now um, things that have been reliable go-tos for teens for some years that, that seem to have um, for one reason or another kind of gone around these bands or slipped, slipped through them.
3: That's interesting. You know, I mean, I just don't have the facts about that. Like I know that Judy, Judy Bloom has very often been on these lists. Um, certainly when I was a kid, like, uh, reading Judy Bloom was an extraordinary revelation about some of these questions. <laughs> and, like, I was very grateful to Judy Bloom. And I knew that there were parents and teachers who thought Judy Bloom was inappropriate, um, which also made us all want to read her more. Um, you know, but this then, you know, something that I think, like, I think those of us, well, I, I shouldn't presume anything actually, because um, I'm actually just meeting both of you, um, in real life, certainly Whitney, we've, we've exchanged emails, but, um, you know, for me as someone who thinks of myself on the left, I'm very comfortable sort of talking about my opposition to the idea of banning books. And it is important that, you know, from the right, these calls are base are coming in at the sort of state and local government level. Like, They want hard bands. It's much less comfortable to talk about the sort of soft questions of what books are appropriate that for me are very front and center when I'm teaching at the university and graduate level. And and in those classes, I think teaching Philip Roth's Sabbath Theater would be hugely challenged and it's very different and i want to be really clear like it's very different to ban a book versus to in the context of your graduate seminar object to being made to read a book those are two radically different acts and yet it does seem to me that from both the right and the left we have become very comfortable with thinking of books as dangerous things to which we are extraordinarily vulnerable. And that troubles me whether it's coming from the right or the left. And whether I'm working with high school kids or with graduate students in, you know, a creative writing MFA, like I want to think of reading as not, and encounters with art as not something that happens to us, but something, and to which we are kind of infinitely vulnerable but instead something we actively engage in and can push back against so that, you know, reading Philip Roth or, you know, I think there is often pushback against any depiction of desire that is coming from the subjectivity of a straight man. Um, Also, in another sense, you know, I was, I'm sort of constantly shocked by what upsets, what causes upset in my classes. Um, Mrs. Dalloway. Was challenged. Why are we reading about this rich white lady? Um, Alexander Cheese Edinburgh, which has a very difficult, nuanced, complex representation of a relationship between a 17 year old college student and his 25 year old um, swim coach. Like that book broke my class. Like my students were deeply upset about it. And really, some of them, you know, many of them loved it and saw it for the masterpiece that I think it is. But some of them really felt, um, I don't know that they used the language of injury, but their affect seemed to be one of injury. Um, And that I think, you know, I would just like to resist that sense of how art works and how art is useful to us as we live. And to think of ourselves as slightly less vulnerable in relation to art. And to sort of have a more reparative sense of how we can use art that is problematic. And I think that would put us on the left on better footing for pushing back against, you know, people who want to say that David Levithan is, you know, horrifyingly abusive of their children, as opposed to Shakespeare sonnets, which are a thousand times more explicit and gloriously. So
2: this is so interesting. Everything you're talking about is very much on my mind is, um, I'm teaching a uh, an MFA seminar on plot and revision, um, which uses a lot of screen adaptations. And so, um, you know, I read ahead of my students and then I do content notes and kind of tuning myself to what is, what should be included in a content note, how to write it. Um, and I don't think, you know, there are lots of ways one can think about content notes, like there was a moment early in the class when I kind of thought, should I have had a spoiler policy? And I was like, what would, I mean, I love spoilers. You know, I, you know, when I, sometimes I just can't, I want to reverse engineer the book before I get to the end. So I just go ahead and look up like, find what the end is. And then I read towards that. And, you know, I do the same thing with movies. So I don't think about that that much. But I know for some people, like experiencing a text in the order in which it is actually presented to them is important, like those feelings of surprise or, or whatever. And yet at the same time, you know, trauma-informed pedagogy tells us that um, I think having a lot of information about what you're going to read um, is hugely helpful to a lot of students and um, to a lot of readers generally. So that's something that I have been thinking about. Um, I do want to go back to the thing you were, you were talking about, um, like the ways that we sort of code... Um, talking about book bans and the sort of softer territory in the middle, and there is also right there's books that are getting shadow banned all the time, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. You mentioned before that the gay and lesbian shelf in, in the bookstore in in Louisville. Um, you know what does it mean when stuff is sort of shelved in the shelved in the corner? That means that you know, like you went in there and found it. Maybe someone else didn't. Um, books that are taught in women's studies or black studies, but not in the general curriculum. Um, Could you talk a little bit about different forms of shadow banning and how that's affected your work or maybe the work of others?
3: Well, yeah. So, I I mean, and again, as with things like content warnings, like none of these are easy questions, you know, and like um, they should be, I think, conversations. And I feel that way about LGBTQ sort of sections in bookstores. I mean, in Louisville before the internet, when I had no way, of finding gay books the fact that that little shadowed corner existed was like I cannot imagine how I would have survived my childhood without it like just going to that shelf also because you know I mean I was in Kentucky public schools I was not getting a literary education I didn't know who James Baldwin was I didn't know who Jeanette Winterson was or Yukio Mishima like these these names meant nothing to me And I would literally sort of furtively snatch a book at random and then take it to a different part of the store and sit and read. And that was unbelievably wonderful. It was incredible to experience Genet that way, to experience, you know, many writers who I would not be comfortable sort of teaching to a whole class of 14-year-olds. When I was 14, they were exactly the, the writers I needed. So that was great. Now I I feel differently about LGBTQ sections in bookstores. You know, my spiritual home, which is Prairie Lights in Iowa City, a wonderful bookstore, yay. has, yay, indeed, has an LGBT section. Um, it is in a corner. It's very hard to find. It's very, as all such sections are, it's very sort of unrigorous in terms of who's there and who's not. Um, for the first, like, four months I was in Iowa City, I was so perplexed as to how this wonderful fiction selection didn't include any books by Colm Toybean or Alan Hollinghurst, and that's because they were back in this little corner. That also, like, some of these sections have, like, signs hanging down from the ceiling, That's but there's no sign for the... So it really does sort of feel like, why do I have to go to this shameful little corner? And I don't like that. And, you know, I... there's. I know a little bit about the politics of this are complicated, but I have expressed the fact that I don't like that section um, I and that I don't want my books there um, because I don't want my books in a shadowy little corner. Now, Three Lives in the village across from the oldest gay bar in America also has an LGBTQ section in their bookstore, which is like Pride of Place, the first thing you see, brightly lit, spot lit, exactly where you want to be in the club and I love having my books there. So, you know, in that sense, like it really is, it's not a question to which I have a kind of principled answer. It's instead, it's like, does this feel like the party I want to be at? Or does this feel like nobody invited me to the prom, you know? And that's another way in which, you know, I do sometimes think that principles get us only so far. And that, um, context matters and community matters and the way things are talked about matters and that we're not always going to be happy like and i still love prairie lights even though they have that little dark shadowy section for a few gay books like it's still my spiritual home and i'm working to try to get them to you know move on from that
1: um. I just wanted to, I, I agree completely with what you're saying. And I, I wanted to also just go back a little bit to the class that broke your book about, you are talking about Alex's novel. I taught Another Country, which is a James Baldwin novel with Rufus Scott as this very complicated black main character. And it was a mixed, you know, it was not a white only class. So I had a lot of black students and they were like, ah, we don't like this guy, <laughs> you know? And it was, and I thought, okay, because that book would have not seemed out of place when I was in college. Like, I don't think people would have objected to it in the same way. And I thought that was interesting. I'm learning from that, you know. Um, yeah, and yeah. I, think,
3: I think it's right that those conversations change. I mean, look, I've, I absolutely will still teach another country. I still teach Giovanni's Room, um, which again, like for me was the book that saved my life. You know, teaching it in a queer aesthetics course at um, the Iowa Writers Workshop You know, some students, and I do, like, I put front and center the fact that I do think that's a book that has a homophobic logic at its heart. Um, And it's, you know, one of the things that is deeply moving if you read Baldwin's novels just first to last is one of the things you see him doing is climbing out of a pit of homophobia. So that in Giovanni's room, you know, queerness is only ever a shut door. And then by just above my head, he can imagine, you know, these full, rich, affective, long-standing relationships between men. And that's very moving. But like still, like this is another way in which I think our conversations about what it means for literature to be affirming are too simple and get things wrong. But I had a student and also like. Another way in which generalizations kind of don't work, that books mean different things to different people. So when I taught Giovanni's Room and very much talked about homophobia in it, um, you know, at the end of the unit or at the end of the couple of classes where we had read it, I had a student, a a wonderful student from Nigeria who said, you know, I am a queer man from Nigeria and this book does not help me. Like I'm from a place where (coughs) homosexuality is criminalized. And this isn't the kind of story I, that is going to help me live my life. And it was so interesting to me because, you know, I said to him, well, I also am from a place where homosexuality was criminalized. Like when I was 14 and read that book, homosexuality was illegal in Kentucky and those laws were enforced. And somehow for me, that book in which homosexuality is only ever a closed door opened every door, but that doesn't mean it does that for everyone. And that's okay too.
1: In addition to being a teacher you are also well known and rightly praised as an author who writes explicitly about sex and what intimate contact reveals about our humanity and how it's a crucial part of our humanity you've also edited uh, a volume of fiction with r.o Quan titled kink that gives other writers a forum for this subject so i'm assuming you find there are important truths a writer can tell by writing about this um did the writers you published in kink talk about what drew them to write about sex and particularly sex that our friendly neighborhood book banners might define as quote unquote, out of the mainstream or quote unquote, inappropriate. Had they had difficulties in finding uh, places to publish that kind of fiction?
3: Well, you know, that's an interesting question and I I wouldn't want to speak for any of them. In the the context of the, or in the, considering the particular stories that we published, they were almost all solicited. So they were written for the volume. So we sort of created a space for them. You know, it is certainly the case that in my own sexually explicit work, um, you know, some of the, so there are two very sexually explicit chapters in, um, cleanness. Um, one of them was published at the Paris Review. Um, actually, I think my first, the first story I'd ever published, um, And then the other, but it had been rejected by other places like The New Yorker and the other story, The Little Saint, which interestingly, they're both stories that have to do with BDSM um, sexual encounters. Gospodar is one in which the narrator um, is the submissive in the encounter. And um, the companion chapter, The Little Saint, is a scene in which the narrator is the dominant. I wonder if that might be a reason that it was, I, I actually, I think that's maybe the strongest chapter in the book. Um, it We could not find a publisher for it. And, you know, my editor at the New Yorker where three of the chapters were published and someone who I love working with was very frank with me about just, you know, this is simply too explicit for us um, to publish. And I think, you know, again, I think that's fine. Um, like, I think it's fine for a magazine to say, we will publish, you know, this amount of explicitness. Um, and the two the two of the other um, chapters that had appeared there also had explicit moments that I think she had said were like as explicit as The New Yorker had ever been. Um, but at a certain point, they had to say, you know, this is just too much for us. And that's analogous in some way to kind of, community conversations that I think can be healthy, you know, and I, you know, um, like, it doesn't make me angry that the New Yorker wouldn't publish that piece. Um, It also, to me, doesn't say anything about the value of the piece itself. Um, So I think, you know, R.O. and I, in conceiving of the book, we certainly did want to create a space for collecting together work, some of which I think probably would have a difficult time in the world you know it's interesting to me there's just i haven't read this but there's just this new book that's come out in the last couple of weeks called anonymous sex i don't know if you guys heard about this i was just thinking about this (laughs) isn't it bizarre so i mean well I, i mean again like wonderful writers are in it and i haven't read the work so i have no opinion about the concrete work in the book, but the the conceit of the book is that they're all writing about sex and they're doing it anonymously. So their books, their their names are on the cover, but not on the individual stories. I have to say that seems very odd to me. Like, I just don't quite understand what that what that's about. Um, because I actually, like, I do think there is a space in the world for this kind of material. Again, maybe it's not going to be the New Yorker, but like, you know, I mean, kink there was definitely a place in the world for kink and you know simon and schuster was willing to publish it and um you know it was a national bestseller so i think you know we shouldn't pretend that these spaces don't exist because then that can also be a kind of discouragement um and i i feel very strongly that queer writers have often been told like if you write sexually explicit stories they won't be published i mean i hope in a world that can accommodate Ocean Vuong and Brontes Purnell and Alex Chi um, and Carmen Maria Machado and, you know, so many great, great queer writers. I mean, Detransition Baby, which has extraordinary um, sex writing in it. You know, I hope that it's harder to tell queer writers that story, that your work won't be published if you write about these things candidly and explicitly.
2: I wonder, you mentioned anonymous sex, which I was also thinking about as you spoke, and I was thinking about the ways in which um, writers from marginalized backgrounds are often read autobiographically, even when they, like, in very simplistic ways, and I was thinking about the ways in which um, having that work untethered from their names might have spared them that, even as it presents other challenges.
3: Oh, that's really interesting. I... I like that idea. That lets me think about it in a slightly different way. Um, because, you know, to me, it does, it, it, to me, it suggested that like, there's something shameful about writing. And I mean, Edmund White is in that book and Edmund White writes explicitly about sex under his own name, you know, as well as anybody, um, talk about books that I read when I was 14, 15, that, were not age appropriate, but absolutely exactly what I needed. Um, Edmund White's collection, Skinned Alive, was absolutely one of those books for me. So, you know, I had been thinking about it as shape, but I like what you say. Yes, that it sort of releases one from that horrifying presumption of autobiography, which you are quite right to say we often face.
2: Um So as we sign off, I just, just to prove the point that writing about sex can be extremely moving and universally human, we would like for you to read a really appropriate, beautiful sex scene from Midway through Cleanness.
3: Oh, I'm so happy to. Thank you. And what a beautiful way to cue it up. I appreciate that. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to read from the title chapter of the book, and I'm going to read the very end of that chapter. Um... And the middle section of the book tells this, um, I mean, really in some, it's, it's a quite conventional relationship between the narrator and, um, another foreigner, a younger Portuguese man whom he has a relationship with. And in this, what's happening here is this Portuguese man, whose name is R, um, has just told the narrator uh, about a childhood trauma that, um, I think neither of them really knows how to process. So that's what's, what's just happened. Um, and now they're in, in the narrator's apartment having sex. I lifted myself off him and reached to the side table to take a condom from the drawer. But as I tore the little package with my teeth, I heard R say, no. And when I said, what, taken aback, he said it again more clearly, no. And though I hesitated, I set it aside. Since we had met, he had been my only partner. He was the only partner I wanted, but it was a risk I knew. Neither of us could be sure the other was safe, and maybe the risk was part of my excitement. Of course it was. Though it wasn't my usual role or a role I usually enjoyed, I was eager for it, more than eager. I was surprised by what I felt as I slipped myself with lubricant from the same drawer, hissing a little at the cold of it, and then I applied it to our between the legs he had raised. I would take my time, I would be gentle, otherwise it would be difficult for him, I thought, I mean, more difficult. But he didn't want me to take my time. Go on, he said, I'm ready, drawing his legs up farther to make room for me. But he wasn't ready. When I entered him, he cried out a terrible sound. I stopped, but only briefly, Since he said again, go, at least that's what I thought he said, go, and I pressed farther into him, drawn forward by what he had said and by my own pleasure, which was exquisite. I had never fucked anyone bare before, there was a heat and silkenness in it I had never felt. R had covered his face with his arm again, I couldn't read his expression as I began to move, and really I was marvelling so much at my own feeling that for a moment I neglected his Anyway, he was hiding it. That was why he had covered his face, to hide from me what he felt. I lowered my own face to the arm beneath which he hid, to the pit of his arm. I loved the smell of him, and tonight beside the familiar scent there was something else, his endurance, maybe his response to pain, since pain was what his noises meant, or some of his noises When I pressed into him, there was a grunt of pain, and when I drew out a little sound of need and invitation or demand that I return, so that if it was pain, it was pleasure, too, or anyway, satisfaction. I liked that I could make him feel this. I found myself seeking new angles to make him feel more need and satisfaction and pain. It was like a new intimacy, though maybe there was something cruel in it as well. Some cruelty in myself I sensed the shape of, a shape I had sensed before, but never before with art. I would give him what he wanted, I thought, though whether I was giving something or taking it away, I wasn't sure. There was a sudden noise then a dull crack that startled me that startled R too. both of us tensed as the room was filled with wind with the noise of it and its force it made the curtains below i felt it cold along my back the window beside the bed had come open there was a way to turn the handle that let it tilt in a few inches at the top it must have come unlatched the wind made a kind of accompaniment as i began to move again a rhythm against which i moved And as I continued fucking R, I thought of the distance from which it had come. Though maybe it doesn't make sense to think of it as having any origin at all, maybe it was pure circulation, picking things up and setting them down again willy-nilly, not just broken things, but also things that seem whole, the sands of Africa or Greece. It was moving the very lands, I thought, however slowly. Nothing was solid, nothing would stay put. And I held on more tightly to R and drove into him more fiercely, drawing from him those noises of pain and of need, noises maybe of pleasure too. I wanted to root into him. Even as the wind said all rootedness was a sham, there were only passing arrangements, makeshift shelters, and poor harbors. I love you, I thought suddenly, in that rush that makes so much seem possible. I love you. Anything I am you have use for is yours.
1: Thank you. That's fantastic writing. Uh, I really love that. I love that passage. And um, Thank you. Thanks for joining us. And listeners, we hope you'll go check out Cleanness and Kink, the anthology Garth edited with R.L. Kwan, and Garth's excellent novel, What Belongs to You. And that's it for the fiction, nonfiction podcast. Or it would be, except that I wanted to talk to Garth about the opera in progress of his novel. Based on his novel, What Belongs to You, which was composed by David Little and recently previewed at Washington University in St. Louis, we were going to bring it up. We got so um, into our conversation on book banning that I forgot, so I'm going to mention it here. This podcast is produced by Ann Kenigendorf with help from students at the University of Missouri, Kansas City and the University of Minnesota. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. We love hearing feedback from our listeners on social media, so we want to give a shout out to Matthew Clark Davison author of the 2021 novel Doubting Thomas and a faculty member at San Francisco State. He wrote in to say that he loved the podcast and couldn't wait to listen to our interview with Randall Mann. Thanks, Matthew. We enjoyed that interview as well. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen, find previous episodes and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed at, under the LitHub radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview at our own fiction nonfiction podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel, and on our website at, at, at fnfpodcast.net where if you're an educator and want to use this podcast in the classroom, our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. We'll provide links to all this stuff in the show notes, and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading, banned or not.